it's not much news that difficult experiences happen. Uh, that's kind of important points to understand. While we all sort of intellectually know it, uh, we tend to take bad news, bad interpersonal experiences, challenges, frustrations. Uh, we tend to take it pretty personally, think there's something wrong. Especially the emotions that arise in the aftermath. Uh, the emotions that we feel, negative emotions after uh, interpersonal disappointment can be pretty painful. And it's very easy to try not to feel the emotional aftermath of a disappointing event. Grief is the emotion that we feel when we have a loss. Sadness is the emotion we feel when an attachment that we thought was reliable, whether with a group or another person, becomes tenuous, threatened. Anger is the emotion we feel when someone in some way threatens us or our attachments. Fear, the concern about losing objects or relationships that offer us security. Guilt and shame are the emotions that we feel after we do something that in some way works against the interest of the tribe that we belong to, the group that we are a member of, family, group, uh, friendships. So all the emotions that I've just listed, the sadness, the grief, the anger, the guilt, shame, fear, they are entirely natural, and they play a very important role in life in that they're all geared to urge us to adapt after we've had a significant emotional experience or a significant challenging experience. Grief, for example, pushes us to fully emotionally let go of an attachment that we relied on. Without grief, we don't accept, we live in denial that we've lost somebody. Sadness is the feeling, or loneliness is the feeling we have when our connections with friends or family uh, becomes thin and tenuous. And the point of sadness is to uh, not only alert us to our vulnerable status, but to get us to do something, to reach out, to connect, to prioritize our lives in different ways. Anger is there to be felt when we feel someone or something is threatening important relationships, and it's, it's pushing us to establish boundaries or to be assertive. Guilt and shame are there and embarrassment are there to make us review our actions and hopefully um, acknowledge mistakes that we've made that have harmed relationships with other people. So the whole point is that we feel these feelings, these affects, affects are the same as emotions, that we feel them 
and that we follow the impulses and then they naturally pass. So that's in the optimum state of affairs. We, we have a negative experience, we lose a friendship, we feel the sadness, and then we adapt by making new friends or acknowledging our mistakes, and then we move on. The Buddha with his son Rahula said that's it. You don't beat yourself up, turn it into an identity story. You feel it, what he called Samwega. You feel the disappointment. You acknowledge it and you let it go. Now the problem is that most of us find emotions pretty painful to be with. In our lives, we've experienced times when we tried to connect with early uh, caretakers, friends, siblings, other peers, and we were shamed or rejected for our emotions. So we can associate our sadness, our fear, our anger as something that leads to interpersonal rejection. And so rather than feel these important emotions and act accordingly when they are steering us in the right direction, what we can do is instead suppress our emotions because we've been taught by uh, parents, teachers, friends, whatever, that you're not allowed to have this emotion. I grew up in a, a family of uh, immigrants and expressing frustration and disappointment was strictly out of the rule book. So when uh, I would try to express that, my parents would immediately guilt me for feeling disappointed with them. So as I grew up, whenever I would feel disappointed or wounded, I would repress the emotions rather than feel it, acknowledge it, talk about it. Many people learn to repress emotions by masking them with other emotions. Some men I know are, have been told by peers that you're not allowed to feel sad or wounded or frightened. So men are, are often trained to gravitate towards anger as the one-stop shop for emotional display that's safe. Um, women in our culture can be conditioned away from allowing themselves to express their entirely natural anger. We live in a culture where we shame misogynistically women for expressing anger, the same anger that we tolerate all the time from men. So what we do is we um, repress entirely natural emotions, mask them. And when we block emotions, what happens is they become dysregulated. They seek any way out to, they can. One of the most, uh, and they keep going on and on and on if they're not fully felt and acknowledged. So one of the ways that we repress is a, through distracting ourselves. When we feel lonely, we might turn on Facebook or Netflix or Amazon or, or uh, we might do something that gives us the illusion of other people being there as a way to repress the feelings of loneliness and lack of connection. And we harm ourselves when we do that because 
there's a real feeling of loneliness that needs to be felt and addressed, and if we simply go to uh, a Netflix show, it's not, uh, it's not acknowledging the feeling, it's not adapting our behavior to take the feeling into <coughs> consideration. Another way, though, we, that's probably even more prevalent is when we experience a negative event in life, a loss, a frustrating experience at work. Um, we don't like feeling our emotions, so we jump up into the realm of narrative storytelling, and we beat ourselves up, we intellectualize or rationalize uh, what has happened in an attempt not to feel the painful emotion. So very often people who've done something unskillful rather than feeling the guilt or embarrassment and acknowledging it, they'll rationalize their actions as a way not to feel the fact that they've made a mistake. Maybe they grew up in families where their parents punished them uh, severely when they made mistakes, so they were trained early in life that any experience of guilt or embarrassment is too dangerous to feel, so it, we're trained or conditioned to believe that it's better to rationalize away our errors in judgment. Uh, sometimes when really, really painful events happen, we lose somebody out of the blue uh, to illness, or somebody uh, suddenly breaks up with us. Rather than feel the sadness, the loss, the grief, we try to figure out what happens. We try to come up with a nice little pithy, way to tell the story. And the problem is, every time we tell the story in our mind as a way to deflect from the feelings, the feelings don't go away. They keep seeking a way to be known. But the story keeps going on and on and on, and every time we start to feel the sadness or grief, we go back into the trying to rationalize or intellectualize or narrate away the experience. So what happens with emotions that we repress is that they turn into dysregulated activations that can cause a lot of suffering. Uh, they, they turn into what's known as aversive affects. Core affects, core emotions are healthy. They're the natural responses to disappointments, sadness after, after a friend doesn't call us up. On the other hand, when we don't allow ourselves to feel our emotions, they turn into chronic stress. Uh, they turn into addictive behaviors where we constantly try to numb the underlying emotion when we start to feel it. They turn into anxiety. Anxiety is a signal that lets us know that a repressed emotion that we don't want to feel is rising mm -hmm. up to the surface. We also go into what some people know, refer to as the fault mode network, which is daydreaming, lost in thought, worrying about what's going to happen to me in the future. Daydreaming in such a manner in default mode network is a way to dissociate from emotional pain. When, for instance, we are bored at work and find ourselves thinking about speculative situations well into the future, what's really happening is an underlying emotion is starting to rise up because we, we aren't fully distracted. 
And so we start to feel some buried emotion, some feeling of disappointment in life, sadness about a, uh, a friendship that isn't uh, working out well, uh, grief about a relational loss, anger about someone. We start to feel this, these feelings, and so rather than feel them, we go off into the storytelling mind about you know, what's going to happen to me? How do I compare to other people? Why haven't I accomplished more in my life? The crazy thing about it, and the work I do with people one-on-one, is that very often the stories that we construct as distractions from emotional pain are often far, far worse than simply feeling the pain that they're distracting us from. It's actually far, far more painful to sit in a mind that's going off into, wow, I really messed up my life. I don't know how I wound up here in this stupid job, sitting in front of this computer, rather than simply feel a little sadness. So, the key to emotional health is allowing emotions to flow once again to get ourselves out of the blocked, aversive affect states of stress, anxiety, um, addiction spirals. Interestingly enough, this is the role that uh, task positive states can help with, that self-soothing behaviors can help uh, arrest those uh, strategies. But even more importantly, are positive emotions that we can... Um, uh, cultivate, which actually the role of positive emotions is not just to connect us with other people, but they also allow us to develop the tools of expressing even the negative states that we've been repressing for a long time. It's kind of a paradoxical that when we make connections with people that feel good, part of the thing that feels good is that we might have to talk about really painful experiences. Barbara Fredrickson and uh, Anthony Wong did some amazing clinical research where they, they demonstrated that uh, positive emotions can actually switch off aversive affects and return us to a kind of neutral state where we can then begin the process of feeling emotions. Um, They did this study called the speech anxiety study, which I don't think anybody would want to do. It's this research where they took a bunch of graduate students and they created a situation that was really scary. What they did is they told the research students that they were going to have to give a 10-minute talk in front of their peers with only one minute to prepare, and they were going to be filmed. Now, most of us hearing that would rather die. In fact, statistically, most people would rather die than speak in public to begin with. But in that situation, most people would rather die painfully, I think, than, than go through it. So what they found was, though, they made they broke the group into two different subsets. One group they showed a very brief happy film, one group they showed a very brief 
negative film, and they found that the people that they showed the happy film to uh, were able to decrease their cardiovascular signature enough that they got through the experience and also felt more comfortable afterwards talking about the stress that they felt in going through the speech. Whereas people who were stuck in the negative affects were less capable of recovering or acknowledging their fear. So it's kind of a feedback loop. The more we repress, the more we're liable to be in negative aversive affects. The more we're in negative affects, the less we're likely to acknowledge what we're going through. The less we acknowledge what we're going through, the more we be, we feel isolated, the worse we feel, the less we're capable of getting out of the rut. So they found that there's a couple of ways that we can get out of these ingrained feedback loops where the core affects that we've repressed that are now bubbling up as anxieties, as um, uh, addictions, as uh, dissociative thought spirals, obsessions that are causing us to disconnect even more from support. There's ways that we can uh, work with this. Uh, of course, the first way is that people respond very, very well to what's known as synchronized communication. Uh, most of the time in life, when we meet with friends and we talk with colleagues, we tend to be very interested in the story that we're spinning in our head, the narrative that we live in, the dramas that we construct. And we live and we attach to these stories because we've relied on these stories as a way to not feel our core emotional affects for so long. And so what happens is we don't really deeply connect. And it's found that what's, what's known as desynchronized conversations or communications don't do us very much good. But synchronized conversations, when we take a moment, we drop the story, and we deeply soak in another person's facial expressions, their tone of voice, their body language, their gestures, the way they're sitting, all the nonverbal communication. We really attuned to somebody empathetically, that almost is a kind of magic bullet. Uh, they, uh, Fredrickson's research shows that it switches off the amygdala, it increases vagal, vagal tone, which is the thing that uh, is the nerve that uh, determines our not only our emotional expressions, but how our heart beats and stuff like that. And the higher your vagal term, the mo tone, the more capable you are of switching emotional states. If you don't have a high vagal tone, you'll be in a bad mood for a lot longer. If you have a high vagal tone, you can move from one group of people to another, and when you go from a group that is stressed out to a group of people that is... It not stressed out, you'll be able to uh, move to that emotional tenor much quicker. In essence, synchronized um, 
connection where we fully drop our story and we listen and we don't interrupt and we take in another person's situation actually creates what's called um, brain coupling. Uh, it uh, has some amazing capabilities of limbically co-regulating each other. Literally, we will find, they found that people's hearts will start to beat slower, their pulse will synchronize, everything, their amygdalas will switch off so that they'll be less activated by fight, flight, or freeze. There'll be less cortisol. So the more we learn to non-verbally connect through eyes, through facial expressions, through pausing, through just simply being with, rather than filling up the space with language and drifting off when somebody else is talking, the more we then create a state where old block emotions can be expressed in a safe way. Carrie Leibowitz of Stanford University, she did this, she was interested why people who live in Tromsø, Norway, which is this extremely northern city where, or town, where it's dark for two months in a row. The sun never rises above the horizon from late November until January. And yet there's very little incidence of seasonal affective disorder very little incidence of depression. And when she went there, she found that, uh, in quotes, small Norwegian communities are tightly knit with strong social ties where they spend an enormous amount of time engaged in festivals and community activities. In other words, people get together. They don't simply live in the story of the way they believe their lives should have turned out or recite the problems of their life. They actually sit with each other and connect in nonverbal ways. So, obviously that's one of the ways that we can create a safe container to begin the process of building a bridge where we can take turns to express the emotions that we've been running from. And once we express those emotions, we'll find that they start to flow and we start to actually live in a much more emotionally present mind. But, sometimes in the midwinter, when we're surrounded by snow and we're isolated, we need more tools than just a weird Buddhist guy with tattoos urging us to connect and uh, build interpersonal support. So the point of tonight's uh, meditation is to give us another tool that we can use when we are at home alone as a way to create a safe container that will allow all those inconvenient, repressed emotions that have been waiting for our attention to arise in a way that rather than activating even more negative emotional states will actually alleviate our blues, our anxieties, will actually alleviate our addictions, will actually alleviate all of the mechanisms that we rely on to uh, distract ourselves from these underlying emotional pains. So, that's the point of tonight's meditation. It's going to be a loving-kindness meditation, and Barbara Fredrickson showed that 
Um, when we practice metta, it, we experience significant shifts in vagal tone. We increase oxytocin, which makes us more likely to connect. The, we experience neuropeptides that allow us to experience greater states of calm. Most importantly, it creates that safe container where we can be with painful affects that we spend a lot of our life running from, and we can do the work of allowing ourselves to reconnect in a safe way with buried emotions so that, once again, we can reconnect with our uh, emotional lives. So, the way this works is uh, we're going to take advantage of the nonverbal uh, links that interpersonal communication has, but we're going to do it cleverly in a meditation. I think you'll understand why it works when we do it. This is going to be a meta practice based on what's known as, um, well, I'll save it for you. I'll just lead you directly into it. So, find a really comfortable position. So, closing the eyes and bringing the awareness, reeling it back in from whatever stories you've been telling about your job or your life or relationships or anything else, and just reel your awareness back into the body. And let's take a nice long breath and pull up the shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears, if that feels okay. And then hold it there. And then breathe out through the mouth and drop the shoulders. And then a second breath, pulling in the belly as tight as you can and holding it taut. And then breathing out, really softening the belly. And then last breath for this starting practice. Tightening the toes, fists, facial muscles, buttocks, legs, arms. Breathing out and softening. I'm taking a quick survey of the body. And again, if there's anything you'd like to address to make yourself more comfortable. And... Uh, See if we can develop that state of being that you experience when you arrive at a distant location that you've been traveling to for a full day, a day where you woke up and you rushed to the airport and you took a long flight got out of the plane after a taxi to the terminal and you jumped in a, a taxi and you finally got to a hotel and you put your bags down, you went down to the pool and you found a comfortable seat and then you just settle in because you've reached your destination. You've got nothing else to do, nothing else to accomplish. Everything in your life has led you to this one specific moment. There's nowhere 
else you have to go. So for a few minutes, just let's settle the mind. And this room is uh, tends to be a fairly loud room in terms of uh, sounds drifting up from the Bowery beneath. So just use the sounds to keep the mind spacious and open and feeling yourself settling into this place of arrival in life. So let's bring our attention to the area in the mind that some people refer to as the mind's eye, the area some people experience behind the forehead or the eyes where you see fantasies, memories, all the images that your mind can conjure up. And in this area, see if you can bring to mind an image of someone who has either been very kind to you, caring. In Buddhist lingo, it's often referred to as a benefactor. Someone who has expressed care. Now, if no one comes to mind quickly or effortlessly, that's okay. Just visualize someone that you regard highly as compassionate.
Many people use Thich Nhat Hanh, the Dalai Lama, Ama, the Buddhist nun Ayakema. And if you can, really focus on the eyes of the individual that you're holding in your mind's eye. See their eyes looking at you, gazing at you, and they're expressing through their eyes. Their entire countenance, especially through their eyes, is one of gentleness, and care, utterly without any judgment, utterly utterly without any criticism, the expression of someone who is more than anything else concerned with your happiness, your well-being. And as the Buddha said, you could go throughout the entire universe and not find an individual that doesn't deserve love and care. Each of us deserves love and care as much as anyone else. You deserve love, compassion, kindness. So keep holding the expression, and if you want, you can move from one benefactor to another, but if you can settle on one, that's probably most helpful. And just maintain the sense of another being wishing you well. Seeing your suffering, your stress, your worries, seeing all of you without any rejection at all, simply wanting you to know peace.
See if you can feel some element in the body, a softening in the shoulder, an easing in the muscles in the back of the neck, or softening of the muscles around the eyes, a lowering of the beating of the heart and the chest, just feeling the sensations of being seen and cared for. And putting aside whatever habitual tendencies you have to judge or criticize yourself, putting that aside and just joining this unconditional friendliness and care that this being would send you, following their lead, joining that loving gaze knowing that the most admired individuals have been those that have urged compassion and care and kindness. Adopting that perspective on yourself the feelings in your body Greet them with unconditional love, the same unconditional kindness. That someone we deeply admired would grant us, join that unconditional love and kindness towards the feelings of your body, the body that keeps you alive. At this point, we could even use a phrase, I love you, keep going, imagining that benefactor saying it, saying it to ourselves. It could be, I love you, keep going. 
I care about you, I'll take care of you. May you know peace and safety. Feeling the feelings of the body, I, I care about you, I'll take care of you. care about you. I'll take care of you. Now let's turn our attention to the areas of the body where we most strongly feel our emotions. Very often the tight belly, the hollowness in the chest, the contraction of the throat muscles, the tightness of the muscles in the back of the neck or the small micro-muscles around the eyes, the forehead, the jaw. Just bring your awareness to these areas of the body and welcome any emotions that seek your attention, whatever arises, I won't run from. I care about you, I'll take care of you. Anything that needs to be felt.
welcoming any feeling that arises, any longing, boredom, anxiousness, jumpiness, discomfort or ease, tiredness or energy, any state that arises, just welcome it, not frightened of any emotion, any feeling, any impulse. Staying in that unconditionally kind mind that welcomes every part of our experience. Not rejecting any feeling. Not rejecting any feeling. If other images and memories arise in the mind at this point, just allow them, don't reject them, welcome, be kind. Allow anything that wants to flow through the mind and the body to move through without any resistance, just greeting with unconditional kindness. Everything in your experience greet with unconditional kindness. It could be your anger, your loneliness, your disappointment, <coughs> your fear, your joy. your embarrassment, greet every part of your mind, every sensation of your body with unconditional love.
So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl, but the goal is to maintain some of this flavor of self-acceptance, you'll find that when we practice this, we don't become more self-indulgent or unskillful, quite the opposite. It's from a compassionate mind that compassionate acts are born towards self and others. So when you hear the sound of the bowl, you'll be tempted to simply open your eyes and look around. Uh, but if you can, first just look at the ground and see if you can bring sight into your awareness in a way that won't dominate your attention, but keep some of that internal feeling of compassion and care for your inner experience going. <laughs> 